0: Welcome, everyone, to our NCAA Social Series, episode number 26. I'm Andy Katz. Coming up on our show, I'll be joined by NCAA Senior Vice President in charge of men's basketball, Dan Gavitt, and then shortly thereafter, NCAA Vice President Lynn Holtzman in charge of women's basketball, coming off the heels of the decision from the Division I Council that was issued on Wednesday, November 25th. That was their decision. That is the start of the men's and women's college basketball season. We will talk about the parameters of the seasons for both men and women. Now, this is going to be a discussion just on Division 1 because for Division 2, they have not decided yet what they're going to do with their respective seasons, and in Division 3, they have allowed teams to start practicing on October 1st, but the majority of Division 3 schools have already said that they're not going to compete till January 1st. At the earliest. So let's start off our conversation with Dan Gavitt. And now, joining me as promised, Dan Gavitt, the senior vice president of the NCAA in charge of all things basketball. And uh, Dan, let's dive deeper. Uh, We talked at length on Wednesday after the decision from the Division I Council, but let's just dive deeper onto the first, that November 25th date. How did the Division I Council come to a consensus on starting the basketball season on November 25th? I
1: think two things are really fundamental about the start of November 25th, Andy. Uh, The first is um, availability of testing and the importance of testing student athletes to make sure that they are uh, negative and safe before competition. Um, We have uh, hope and belief that from our medical advisory group uh, more available testing will be uh, the, the scenario in late November. Um, antigen testing, um, point of care testing that is more affordable and more uh, available. And thus we can test on a multiple time per week basis to make sure we get off to a a safe and responsible start of basketball season. The other is that by November 25th, three quarters of division one institutions will have either completed their fall semester in total, including exams or at least moved from in-person instruction to virtual instruction An online exam, so it creates a time period during which uh, campuses will be far less populated, and it'll be much more of a controlled environment to get the season off to a successful start. All right, so a couple things you just
0: mentioned there. I'll I'll get to testing here momentarily. Uh, The Uh, optics—we can never ignore the optics. How, How much did the council, and probably in council with presidents, want to wait to start a sport as major as basketball until, as you said? That most of the students are gone. We know football and some of these institutions will be going on during this time, but to really start competition until most of those students are off campus.
1: Well, I think we saw that with the start of fall sports—that you know, a slight delay, making sure that all the testing protocols are in place, and that you know there was optimal time for uh, student athletes to be prepared physically and mentally. I'll talk about that in a moment here. Um, it was really important in this uh, uncertain time we're in, in the time period that we've had, you know, where student athletes have been away for campus for so long. In the fall now, we have students that have come back to campus across the country. And, and you know, schools are trying to work through what the challenges are around that in this COVID-19 environment. So, you know, delaying the start of basketball by two weeks and making sure that things are lined up and prepared uh, is, is, is the responsible thing to do. And, you know, I mentioned, um, you know, making sure the student athletes are both ready physically and mentally. That was a pretty significant part of this package that I don't think has been recognized probably yet, um, but certainly coaches and student athletes do. And that is that uh, starting on Monday, uh, there'll be a ramp up of um, practice time going from eight hours to 12 hours per week. for for three weeks uh, of additional kind of conditioning um, and and getting ready for the start of practice on october 14th athletic trainers and team physicians and coaches you know told us over the course of the summer that in many cases their student athletes weren't able to be on campus since early march Um, or those that were maybe didn't have the kind of time uh, to prepare physically and mentally for the start of the basketball season so that that's part of this is as well just making sure that teams are prepared to start what we think and hope will be a very successful season well and to that point dan i mean a school like ucla i've talked to
0: mcronin i mean they weren't able to be on campus at all um so there are different parts of the country where some some schools have allowed their teams uh, you know to practice voluntarily or mini workouts and others just Haven't even stepped on the court yet. So, yes, this is obviously critical to at least get that first phase before team practice starts on October 14th, which I'll mention here in a moment. I want to go back to testing. Um, You know, obviously, we're hearing a lot of news uh, about almost daily testing, this rapid testing, this point of care testing. You know, with the news, the Big Ten football is coming back. That was a key indicator. Uh, The Pac 12 obviously has struck a deal with a company in San Diego to do that as well. the NCAA does not control that in the regular season, but how confident are you from what you've heard through this council meeting as well, that it will be widely available, not just to some of these you know, uh, few
1: conferences when we get to Thanksgiving week? Well, I think basketball is fortunate, obviously, to be starting later anyways, as a winter sport. Um, we certainly have seen a lot of advancements in testing, as you noted, um, as I mentioned, it's really fundamental to getting basketball started successfully. and um, you know so there's that is a big part of this. Um, while um, Brian Dr. Brian Hainline, who I know has been a regular guest in the social series, uh, has a newly formed COVID-19 uh, medical advisory group that um, is inclusive of many members of the membership, uh, team physicians and and experts in epidemiology and, and uh, infectious disease, and you know, they they have a, a cautious level of optimism that the testing we need to do basketball and to do it safely is going to be available in late November. And again, that's very fundamental to making sure this happens. And it will be uh, required, I believe, um, if not at least uh, uh, suggested that multiple testing per week will be the protocol for basketball.
0: So Dan, obviously. That's great news. Now, one concern that I've heard is the contact tracing um, because that could potentially decimate a team even if nobody is positive. Um, You know, if one player uh, was, uh, you know, a member of the sort of the the staff or, you know, the trainer or someone, not even a player was positive, but everyone's around that person, you could end up with a 14-day period how much was that discussed, that that could be a major disruptor uh, to getting the season going for certain schools?
1: Well, yeah, that's that's also a significant factor the Oversight Committees took into consideration. Um, that's just a reality, unfortunately, with the pandemic we're, we're living through. Um, and, and that is CDC guidelines. We know um, that kind of quarantining. And I think that there's a, a general understanding, acceptance that it's very likely that basketball seasons will be disrupted by the very thing you're talking about um, you know it's hopeful that, that those disruptions will be uh few and, and minimal in nature um but it doesn't take much stuff to, to have uh, one positive test or one exposure high level exposure on campus or in a team um to essentially you know quarantine an entire team for upwards of two weeks as you mentioned and so that's one of the reasons why uh, the oversight committees with testing available thought it was important to get the season started in late November around Thanksgiving. You know, there were some that thought we should wish wait and start the season in January. Um, but one of the challenges with that is that once you have disruptions, as you know, if they do happen, then you have far you know, fewer play dates and far less time to get a full regular season in um so that's that's part of the plan here too is is starting in november to provide you know six weeks or so of uh opportunity to play games and like i said a less you know, populated and more controlled environment before the second semester begins uh, but we will continue to monitor this this is uh the first decision and hopefully the last if things go well but if uh if things don't pan out the way um, we hope and expect that they will We'll have regular check-ins every couple of weeks um, on the availability of testing, how things are going. Um, and if we need to pivot again in order to, to have a successful start to the season, we will consider that. Um, but we're confident that as of right now, as of this week in, in mid-September, that the plan is a solid one to get basketball started successfully uh, around Thanksgiving.
0: So Dan, one of the things that has come about in the last couple of years uh, for sort of student athlete rights has been sort of a mandatory break around Christmas to get those students off of campus and away from basketball and with their families. This is an unprecedented year. Uh, Obviously, you know, schools have canceled um, sort of the mini fall break. They don't want students going home and coming back if they're on campus. How much thought was put into that where, you know, that could be a major disruption uh, if players are allowed to leave and then come back and hope to restart uh, when you could run the risk of having what we just talked about, you know, a 14-day quarantine or someone being positive?
1: Yeah, it was a significant consideration, Andy. Um, the medical advisory group um, was asked that very question. And and they actually thought that, you know, the, the risk was not significantly greater um, by having student athletes go home for three days of a winter break over the holidays. Um, than it would be if, you know, if they were otherwise uh, on campus and going out and doing things you know, around, uh, around school. Uh, of course, testing is still a big part of that. They'll have to be tested before they leave in order to be safe before they go home and tested when they come back to make sure that they're safe you know, before practice and competition start again. Um, but one of the things we, we, we did engage a lot with student athletes during this process. Um, thanks to Craig Robinson, the new executive director of the NABC, uh, who has formed a player development coalition of student athletes um, to get their uh, their voice heard and get their ideas of things that we're considering. The, the overwhelming feedback we got from those student athletes and, and others and the women's side um, was it that that winter break was really important for you know for their mental health, for their families to get a break away from the game. And so we wanted to honor that, that legislation stays in place and schools and conferences will have to plan around that. You know, maybe it may be wise this year to to add a couple of extra days after the holiday break before competition starts again. But I'm confident that our conferences and schools uh, can do that and will do that, um, you know, for the benefit and health and safety of the student athletes and everybody around the program.
0: So one other thing, Dan, before we get into the season uh, and some questions related to that, uh, eligibility this has come up obviously with fall sports where it's basically a write-off you know you can come back if uh, some of these fall sports happen and they only play four games or four matches or what have you what kind of discussion was given to the winter sports obviously notably basketball about whether or not um, these athletes can get this year back if we know there's a minimum here of only 13 if Hypothetically, they only play 13 games this particular season.
1: Yeah, great question, Andy. The council has not yet dealt with that for winter student athletes, including basketball. Uh, they are planning to do so at their October meeting. Uh, that timeline is still consistent with, with their discussion and consideration around those decisions for fall sports student athletes um, that happened in late August. So I think the goal of the council there is you know, to have those decisions made before the season were to start, um, probably in in mid to late October. So the student athletes in basketball would know exactly what their, um, what the situation was with eligibility seasons of competition, so that they can make the best decision for them and for their families. All right, so let's deal with the parameters of the season. Um,
0: The number of games, a little confusion here. And, uh, you know, I think when we say four less from 31, Unfortunately, in basketball, because some play tournaments, some don't, Uh, let's try to simplify this for those coaches and tournament organizers out there about what you can do in men's basketball in terms of number of games this
1: season. Yeah, so the maximum number of games was reduced by four. And the reason it was reduced by four is that we lost uh, 15 days of the season, essentially two weeks. So if you figure two games per week, four play dates, uh, that would be a reduction of four games overall. Um, In simplified terms, Andy, that goes from a maximum of 31 to 27, if you play in an MTE. If you don't play in an MTE- I'm sorry, an MTE is a multiple team event for those that aren't familiar with all our acronyms here. Go ahead. Yes. you know, think Maui uh, Maui Invitational, uh, Battle for Atlantis, uh, MTEs, such of that nature, um, and many, many others that uh, take different forms. Um, so, it, 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 before this, if you were playing in an MTE, you could play a maximum of 31 games if you were in an MTE, or 27 if you, uh, excuse me, 29 if you were not in an MTE. With a reduction of four games now, the maximum is 27 if you're in an MTE. Or 25 if you're not an MTE. All right. What about minimums?
0: I just mentioned it, but to explain how that, why that number 13 came about.
1: Sure. So this is um, a, both a sports sponsorship and a championship issue. Sports sponsorship-wise, you you have to play a minimum of 25 games um, in order to um, you know to qualify um, as a as a basketball program at the Division One level. Uh, in a normal year. That number was reduced to 13, 50% of that, of that uh, number because of the, the pandemic that we're, we're dealing with. Um, for championship eligibility this year, it'll have to be 13 division one games um, in order to be eligible. So, um, you know, again, schools and conferences can have the flexibility uh, to, to figure out what those games are, whether they be conference games or non-conference, there's some combination thereof. But in order to be to be eligible for the NCAA championship, 13 Division I opponents is the minimum number of games.
0: So non-conference was not mandated, but what was the suggestion?
1: Yeah, so the, the, the council, the oversight committee, the basketball committee don't don't have authority um, in determining um, how many conference games are played or non-conference games or the mix they're in. Um, but in this time of uncertainty, the basketball committee in trying to help with um, decisions around scheduling, uh, especially as it relates to the NCAA basketball championships, um, wanted to provide a little direction uh, they thought was in the best interest of the game overall, in the best interest of the tournament selection and the seeding process. And so they made a recommendation of a minimum of four non-conference games. Um, it's still just a recommendation, it's not a mandate, um, but hopefully it provides some guidance and direction to the membership as they make decisions on essential games, um, you know, participation in MTEs, a conference schedule, what that may look like. Um, and that's again, feedback we got directly from student athletes, uh, while they appreciate their conference schedule, they do want to play in some number of non-conference games. So, we hope that that, that that will be the case. It, again, it leaves the decision making at a local level around what those non-conference games would be. They could be MTEs, they could be conference challenges, they could be local rivals. Um, if schools decide that you know local regional play is, is safest and most affordable, without overnight stays, all of that um, is up to the institution to decide, uh, but hopefully it'll include a minimum minimum of four non-conference games.
0: All right, so here's what we know now, Dan. Uh, ESPN plans on holding all its events in Orlando some time frame between November 25th and, and Christmas. Um, the Gazelle Group and the Hall of Fame are looking at doing all their events at the Mohegan Sun. Maui is looking at moving either to India or Asheville, Atlantis to likely South Dakota. So all these events are happening. What happens if you have an event between November 10th and November 25th and you say, you know what, I can't find a date. I have this contract um you know i'd like to play my event between the 10th and the 25th what's that process and maybe even the chance that there could be a waiver and appeal granted to try to squeeze it in during those 15 days
1: well there's always a waiver process andy for um you know for a competition that uh that someone is interested in playing before the first permissible date Uh, so that waiver process is in place for this year um, but I have to say that the bar for uh, approval of an event like that or an individual contest will be very high. Uh, the decision to move a season back 15 days is based on on medical guidance and the health and safety of student athletes and coaches and teams. So the rationale around why a contest should be, you know, could, it could be should be made before that date um, will will be challenged um, to you know to come up with a rationale for that. Um, the oversight committees uh, haven't yet uh, developed exact parameters upon which you know they would consider, but they have talked basically and generally about the fact that they're not going to be very supportive of uh, of waivers to start the season earlier than november twenty
0: fifth. So Dan, this this feels like we're going backwards in a way of like sort of old school. October 14th, it used to be the 15th for the start of practice, and it feels to me, and I'm curious if you agree here, that non-conference, then conference, and that there really won't be non-conference once conference starts because everyone's going to sort of have those similar testing protocols. How much do you think that's what will happen, that we'll have non-conference section, then conference toward the tournament?
1: i think that's very likely andy um because of the the time period we're talking about you know from thanksgiving until the start of the second semester in january but i also think and uh and i think it's probably prudent uh that conferences consider playing some conference games during that time period as well um you know maybe in a in a you know a creative way where you bring together several conference opponents uh and, and play, you know, a little round robin for, you know, three, four, five days, and, and get some games in that way before the holiday break. Um, and you may see other conferences that really just focus on their conference schedule for a variety of reasons—health, finances—and um, and you know, get some conference games in that way also. So we'll see. I know that, that you know, the council's action this week uh, certainly created a lot of um, work for a lot of people around the game. Um, that, you know, need to reimagine um, what the schedule may look like. Uh, but I think also a lot of schools and conferences were very much waiting on the council decision, um, you know, before those decisions were made on a local and conference level. Um, having some direction and as much certainty in an uncertain time as we can provide was very much one of the goals of the oversight committees and the council was to provide some direction here in mid-September so those decisions can be made and schedule can go
2: forward.
0: All right, so before we wrap up, the last topic, of course, is the postseason. Uh, It's what uh, we do here uh, and run the greatest tournament in the world. Um, All right, so normally we would have the selection committee look at the net. We've had nitty-gritty sheets, all those kinds of things, comparing and contrasting. Um, We don't know how many non-conference games these teams are going to play. What is the selection committee going to have to look at in terms of sort of its key indicators, and maybe back even to the eye test, uh, as they get toward hopefully that normal period of selection uh, and seeding in uh, mid March.
1: Yeah, the committee's been talking about. The basketball committees, men's and women's, have been talking about that over the course of the entire summer, and continue to you know kind of analyze that uh, the challenges around that. As you note, know, Andy, I think. If there are, you know, a, a minimum number of non-conference games played by each uh, by each team and there's enough of a mix and, and cross-pollination of those games, um, the compromise of the net and other analytics may not be as great as, as, it, as we feared. Um, so we'll have to see if that comes to pass. Um, it, nevertheless, even with fewer non-conference games, potentially, or an unequal number of games uh, by schools and conferences, um, it's going to require a different way of looking at analyzing and evaluating teams. Um, we've looked at what other metrics could be used. Um, certainly, uh, you know, as you mentioned that uh, qualitative analysis of watching games is going to be critical this year, um, as one of the factors also. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that, you know, the committees will adjust as necessary. We're still, uh, you know, their charge will still be to select the 36 best teams as at-large teams um, you know, by a variety of factors that they'll evaluate uh, and then and then seed the field, uh, one through 68 on the men's side and one through 64 on the women's side. And uh, so we'll continue to monitor that and see what kind of adjustments need to be considered. Um, some of that will depend on how things get started here and how we get going. but. Um, I'm confident we've got two great committees, incredible leadership, and in, and Mitch Barnhart on the men's side and Nina King on the women's side, and I, I'm very confident they'll do a terrific job under yeah, challenge. Mitch
0: Barnhart from Kentucky, Nina King from Duke. Um, all right. Uh, last thing as it relates to the tournament, and first of all, we should remind everyone that conferences determine who you know which team is their AQ, and if if conference tournaments for this year go away or aren't had, each conference still can determine who their representative is by, you know, which school wins their league or however they want to determine it. That's up to each league and just want to remind everyone of that. All right, so the tournament. Um, you and I have talked many times about contingencies and obviously Mark Emmert has mentioned that, you know, if we have to, we could bubble. All those things are still out there. But as we sit here in mid-September, what is still the plan in terms of the final four in Indy April 3rd and five 68 team tournament uh, with with obviously, you know, eight sites down to four and then down to Indy?
1: That's still the plan, Andy. Uh, you know, that's still the preference is to have the tournament as scheduled and with the format and, uh, and field size and sites, as you mentioned. Um, but, you know, we certainly have not been, um, you know, foolish about, the challenges around the championship. We've been looking at contingency planning the entire summer. The basketball committee meets every two weeks. We'll continue to. Uh, we've got multiple contingencies that we have drawn up, and uh, if necessitated, we'll will activate those. But mid-September is not the time for that. Um, we're still learning so much um, about you know other other sports and, and other events and. Um, you know, we're having positive developments in terms of, you know, advancements in testing and some level of fans at events uh, in the NFL. And, um, and and so we'll see, in college football as well. Um, but we we, uh, we are well prepared, I think, um, to adjust as necessary. Uh, but the preference still is to, is to have the tournament the way we have it scheduled now.
0: And what you have said before is if basketball is being played around the globe, you know, we can do it as well, and we've seen, obviously, I'm just talking about the actual sport, of playing the sport, bubble or no bubble. We've seen its success, obviously, down in Florida with the NBA and the WNBA. And obviously, it's happened uh, in other parts of the globe as well. Uh, The last thing, Dan, is unity, Um, consensus. I don't want to disparage another sport, but the reality is basketball has come out with one voice. This is what we want to do. This is the consensus. And uh, it has been universally embraced. So just if you can for a moment, just about the consensus, the unity from all stakeholders, NEBC that you just mentioned briefly, uh, the players having a voice here. How did this all come together where there has been such consensus with this decision from the council to move forward and everyone's embracing, hey, we're going to have a season starting November 25th?
1: Well, I think basketball is fortunate in timing, you know, it is mid September. We've had, you know, months now to, you know, to kind of watch, learn and listen and and work together. Collaboratively, as you mentioned, you know, we've had great leadership uh, in the oversight committees, Judy McCloud, the chair of the men's oversight committee, Lisa Campos, the chair of the women's oversight committee. um, Great leadership of the council with Grace Calhoun as the chair, um, our conference commissioners, uh, the NABC, Uh, Executive Director Craig Robinson, as I mentioned, uh, retiring and and congratulations to Reggie Minton, the uh, Deputy Executive Director, uh, longtime friend and an incredible uh, leader in college basketball, Danielle Donahue from the WBCA, coaches, athletic directors, commissioners, certainly all 32 commissioners, as well as Lynn Holzman, our Vice President of Women's Basketball, who's been an incredible leader throughout this entire process as well. I, I think that we just, you know, looked at it the old-fashioned way. We worked, you know, hard communicating over the course of the summer, getting all perspectives considered, uh, both internally and externally. Uh, you know, event operators and television executives, and, and you name it, all the, about the game, and trying to get to a consensus. As you mentioned, it is a consensus. It is a grand compromise of sorts. It is not. Uh, one size fits all. That's the case with the start of the season. It'll be the case during the season and likely even with the NCA championships. Um, you know, this is an unusual uh, year and season, uh, but it's gonna be a great one. And I think the fact that we've been able to get to some consensus um, that makes sense um, and can start the season in a safe and responsible way is exciting and encouraging for, for the game. And uh, now we've still got a lot of work to do. Um, you know, we have to continue to monitor um, what, uh, how, how things develop with testing and, and how practice and, and preparation of the court and uh, game operations uh, and those kind of advancements. But um, I, you know, I'm encouraged that uh, you know this the basketball community that is so great kind of came together and everyone kind of you know put in uh, a little bit, made a little compromise here and there, and we got to a place hopefully where there is unity and and I hope for a a good start to the season that will lead to a great finish to the season as well. Well, Dan, I appreciate it. Tremendous work. This is just
0: step one. Now we got a plan. we got parameters. And uh, everyone's going to work hard to make this all happen, uh, beginning with practice, official team practice, on October 14th, the start of the season uh, on on November 25th. Thanks, Dan. Stay safe. Thanks, Andy. Good being with you. Stay well. And now joining me, Lynn Holtzman, NCAA Vice President in charge of women's basketball. Uh, Lynn, let's first deal with the consensus here, the unity that we saw from men's and women's basketball in coming out with, when I say one voice, I don't mean one person speaking, but one voice in terms of, you know, one um, goal in mind, which is to have a season, have a tournament uh, from that Division One Council meeting. How critical was it to hear that?
2: I think um, absolutely critical. You know, early on when we started this examination, uh, out of the gates, we started the two uh, oversight committees, both the men's and women's basketball oversight committees started working together and collaboratively on this issue. Um, We recognized both internally and the leadership within those committees recognized how important it was for men's and women's basketball to be working um, Along similar paths, and then frankly coming together to determine what was best for collegiate basketball in Division One, and that's regardless of gender.
0: So November 25th, from your vantage point, why did that date work for women's basketball to start its season?
2: Well, it's a similar uh, reasons as 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 we we have seen expressed, um, even for men's basketball. When you look at over three quarters of our institutions, um, the data shows that a majority of students will be off campus at that period of time. So therefore mitigating some of the risk associated with launching the season at that time. There's um, the anticipation that there'll be increased testing. So all those health and safety reasons are why just for collegiate basketball it's better to have that first competition date as november 25th because this is about the overall health and safety of our men's and women's basketball student athletes and so
0: what went into the decisions about the maximum and the minimum number of games
2: well with the maximum number of contests the reduction with um, 15 days essentially from the regular normal November 10th first contest data moving to the 25th essentially equates to about two games a week and then as you um, Know that you have less days available to actually play the season the oversight committees Felt that it was appropriate to move forward and just reduce the max number of contests I think there was very solid logic behind that and how and reasoning why they came to that conclusion with the minimum number of contests and moving to um, it being 50% of, of what is normally the legislated requirement of a program in both men's women's basketball, um, play, having to play at least 25 games, that put us to the 13 minimum contests requirements. And then for selections specifically, um, those 13 contests do have to be against active Division I institutions.
0: So I know, look, I know you don't control non-conference, uh, but there's an encouragement to have non-conference. And we know there are a lot of third party organizers, um, not as many women's basketball as there are in men, uh, but there are certainly events, uh, some that were before the 25th, uh, obviously plenty that were Thanksgiving week and after. Um, what have you heard from other women's coaches, uh, network partners, about trying to ensure that there will be non-conference games before conference play?
2: Well, the messages one of the messages that came out of both the men's women's basketball committees, our championship selection committees and and selection committees was to encourage institutions to try to make sure that they are playing non conference games as they're able to. That allows for, if you will, cross pollination and puts the committees in a better position to do their work relative to the selection seating and bracketing. When when the season shifts for these primarily for these health and safety reasons, it it may put people in a predicament or having to adjust and adapt. But the reasons that the um, the first competition date has been delayed are are very solid in that manner. So the response whether it's a multi-team event or just a non-conference game Um, and because we've been signaling if you will that these conversations have been taking place I think throughout the basketball community people have been although waiting for the outcome there was some anticipation that they were going to have to adapt and pivot.
0: The quarantine aspect is the sort of the elf in the room we don't know how that's going to go especially contact tracing. How critical was it to start at least in Thanksgiving, not push it to January to allow to have that six week period, whether students are there or not, and they won't be, but to to have more time to work with, to ensure that we get this regular season in, in case there has to be uh, disruptions.
2: Well, one of the primary factors for uh, both men's and women's basketball was to put ourselves in a position that we could successfully launch the season. And then, as you look at the totality or the um, the length of the season relative to when the championships and selections would take place, it was still to provide a as much as possible a safe window of opportunity to get games in, as we've as we have seen with um, some schools that are playing fall sports. And even through the conversations, I think there is an anticipation that there, there may very well be some disruptions with some of the programs for the reasons you noted, whether it's because of quarantines, it's uh, confirmed COVID cases, the contact tracing and everything. So again, the the as you bring in the multiple issues of, let's make try to make sure we launch it successfully at a period of time of which we can lower some of the risk because there's less students on campus but then still provide a, a pretty ample opportunity, a window of opportunity to get in as full of a season as possible. That's what the goals of the oversight committee were. How much are you hearing uh,
0: you know, any possibility, almost going back to the way it was decades ago or even in high school, where there could be the men and women traveling to a neutral site together, especially even within conference, to get games in, to cut costs, Uh, to ensure that um, these games are played in the same sort of health and safety manner uh, and and maybe traveling in groups?
2: You know, uh, among the 32 conferences, I think all the conferences as they work with their leadership are trying to figure out the, the safest and the most effective and efficient way to do all of that. Um, So there, I think, are a variety of approaches that people are exploring. There may be some conferences that typically over the course of a weekend may, as they do their schedule, they have to make sure because of facilities that how the men and women are opposite. So does this provide a different way to approach it in the sense, like you said, of going to a central location to play a group of schools within the conference or the non-conference, whatever the case may be. And then there's others, frankly, as the the commissioners work with their leadership, that probably are just going to take more of a um, of a, a different kind of approach, where it's more about the what's best for their women's basketball programs within that conference, and then their men's programs.
0: From the women's basketball oversight committee, how how much movement was there? And I know the council is going to look at this in October, for potentially giving a free year in terms of eligibility. We've seen that with fall sports, where this is basically a free year, whether you play one game or 20 games, because it's gonna be so disjointed of when those fall sports are playing. Where does that stand with the Women's Basketball Oversight Committee?
2: Well, given all the the heavy issues that the committees were just dealing with, they really haven't walked up to that specific issue themselves. Obviously, as you you said, um, we can look at the examples of what the council did relative to fall sports and um, then surmise that there may be a similar approach. But as, as we've said all along, this was kind of the first bucket of issues that we needed to get some clarity on and for the council to make decisions. And then we move into other decisions that need to be made. And frankly, to my comment also is that how winter sports may be approached and their seasons of competition and uh, and how that, that may be um, determined by the council most likely isn't going to be just a basketball decision it's going to be what is it's going to be looked at in a more holistic manner for winter sports overall
0: so i asked this of dan um the christmas break which has been sort of built in recently is sort of almost mandated uh for student health uh, student athlete health to allow them to get that break um they decide on the men's side not to give that up Um, even though you run the risk on the back end of maybe having to quarantine or deal with it on the back end if people are going around the country and coming back to that campus. What about on women's basketball?
2: Well again that's an issue also where both men's and women's came out the same um, with a three-day mandatory break in that holiday period. Um, And that is specifically autonomy five legislation, so that's also a consideration here is that um, our autonomy five institutions primarily are the ones that are subject to having to comply with that, while other schools have have a chance to an opportunity to opt in if they so choose. That was a topic, though, that we did engage the COVID the medical advisory panel on to get their perspective. And Frank, and the message that came out of that, frankly, from the medical professionals was it, it was about managing risky behavior. And that could be regardless of whether a student athlete goes home or not, or stays on campus or whatever, the, the emphasis and the messaging that, that came out of that group when they reviewed this is that the, the, the foundational issue is that across the board, figure out how to manage risky behavior to mitigate risk.
0: The tournament. Um, we've talked about this before, you and me and and Nina King. Um, We fully expect it to happen. Uh, We're not even thinking of not happening. Uh, In terms of the dates and the site in San Antonio and all that, uh, at this juncture, what is the plan to ensure that the tournament happens with the same amount of teams, uh, at least at the same destination, let alone the lead up to it?
2: As of today, we are planning and continue to plan to have our championship with the full field in of 64 teams and to have our women's final four in San Antonio and crown a national champion. Um, as things continue to unfold here relative to the pandemic and with health and safety being a priority, um, if if we have to pivot to make different decisions in order to ensure that health and safety, we will. But as of today, we are planning to have our women's Final Four in San Antonio and crown a national champion.
0: All right, great to hear. And one last thing, Lynn, the, the optics, the visual of seeing the WNBA play and doing it successfully. The sport of basketball in the middle of pandemic, I know they're within their own bubble. But how much has that helped in getting the women's basketball on the college side going and saying, look, you can play this sport if you do it you know, within the health and safety parameters?
2: And, I, and to your point, I think that's that was um, we were in a great position because both the WNBA and the NBA, seeing that they were able to play their season and what was learned from them moving into the bubble. And then as you consider moving and consider transferring that over to the collegiate space. Um, I mean, I think frankly, it, it it's inspirational. It um, brought some positivity and optimism to our, our women's basketball community where they can see that we can successfully do that. It takes us um, thinking different and taking a different approach and how we continue to work Uh, collaboratively and side-by-side with health officials and otherwise but it is possible so if anything I think it helped with the optimism and also uh, put us in a position to make a lot of the decisions that were just made by the council
0: well Lynn Holtzman we appreciate it Uh, this is all great news as we head toward the uh, tip-off on November 25th and then uh, on our way to crowning a men's and women's basketball champion uh, in early April appreciate it thank you thank you and a thank you to Dan Gavitt and Lynn Holtzman, and as always, you can go to NCAA.org socialseries social series where all our episodes, all 26 now, are archived as we've been discussing all the issues related to the pandemic, social justice. We are continuing this indefinitely every week here on Friday nights where we debut the show on our NCAA social media platforms. Uh, And this topic of the college basketball seasons, we certainly will hit throughout the next couple of weeks at different points as we see it sort of formulate and the parameters for that continue to be basically put in place going forward. Appreciate everyone, the engagement we're seeing on this channel, on this show. We'll talk again next week. Stay safe, everyone.